Monday. 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 Open wide dev fans. Get ready to stuff your face with JavaScript, CSS, Node Modules, Barbecue Tips, Git Workflows, Breakdancing, Soft Skills, Web Development, The Hastiest, The Craziest, The Tastiest, Web Development Treats. Coming in hot, here is Wes, Barracuda, Boss, and Scott, El Toro Loco, Tolinsky. Welcome to Syntax in this Monday Hasty Treat. We're going to be talking all about developing for slow or spotty internet connections. Because we all know that the web isn't always the high-powered gigabit speeds that sometimes we get to develop on in our fancy offices. And a lot of times people are using with slower, worse internet connections. So we're going to be talking about some of this stuff, how we can combat this, and just some general ideas. My name is Scott Talinsky. I'm a full stack developer from Denver, Colorado. And with me as always is Wes Baus. Hey, everybody. Hey, am I going to get a hey, everybody? Yeah, yeah. Wait for that. Hey, everybody, Wes. <laughs> hey, everybody. I'm excited to talk about this because ever since the pandemic hit, we uh, went and bugged out our cottage and we have several sources of internet up here and they were all awful. Like they're okay. I'm happy to have it, but there's a lot I've learned about developing for slow connections just from using the internet on a slow connection for the last two months. There's sort of a lot that has made me think about this. So we're going to go through some things that you as a developer should think about because especially like I see this as well as when people are developing locally, everything loads instantly when it's local. So you don't even think about this. Exactly. Right. So many of these things we don't think about. Now, this episode is sponsored by a company that's going to help you fix the things that you didn't think about when you didn't think about them and they broke. And I'm talking about LogRocket at LogRocket.com forward slash syntax. You're going to get 14 days of this service, which what it does is gives you a screen recording of what the user did to break your site. You get to see mouse movements. You get to see clicks. You get to see network requests and error logs and all of those things that you're used to having when you encounter a bug in your own local environment. But now you get to have them in your production environment with actual users using your site. It's a really amazing service and one of the best ways to really understand why these things are happening on your site. So thank you so much, LogRocket, for sponsoring. Now, let's get into it. Slow connections. And it's funny, Wes, you're on a slow connection right now. In fact, the last few episodes, it's been really hard to talk because the internet's been cutting it out. <laughs> Yeah, there's a couple different types of slow connections. There's slow upload speed, which generally isn't a huge issue unless you are trying to do a Zoom call or something with somebody or trying to upload a large file. There's slow download, which is probably the one that most people complain about. And this is not just like you have a slow download pipe, but it could be lots of people using the same connection. Your kids are watching a show, your partner's on a Zoom call, things like that. It quickly gobbles it up. And it's easy for us developers who usually have very fast connections to forget about these types of things, especially like I know, Scott, you have what gigabit connection at, at your office right now. Oh, you bet I do. So that's what, 1028 megabits per second. And I'm over here on 0 0.6 megabits up. I never get a thousand, though. I, I usually get like if I'm wired Ethernet, I'll get like 700. You know, CenturyLink. That's it? Yeah, yeah, only 700. And I had to call CenturyLink and I was like, listen, I'm not getting the speeds I paid for or I'm paying for. I'm only getting 700. They're just like, OK, <laughs> they didn't do anything <laughs> to fix it. <laughs> so that's great. But it's still better than what I'd get for Comcast from the same price. So, you know, there's only so much oh, you can man. do. Lucky. 
There's also high latency, which is when the time it takes for your request to go from one place to another. And even if you're sending the character R from me to Scott, there still will be a however many millisecond delay in between each of them. And latency can be introduced by any number of things. So latency is one and then intermittent connection. So this is something that even if you live in a large city, you may run into because like maybe you're ducking into the subway really quickly. Maybe you are in between two buildings. Maybe you're in a building with a metal roof over top of it. There's all kinds of things that can cause your connection to go in and out, especially on mobile and designing interfaces that account for all of these different types of connections is is pretty important. And I like I said this already, I don't think a lot of us think about it. And even I, I tweeted it out, like, what are some things you need to think about for slow connections? And I got like one reply. And it just goes to show that most of us aren't thinking. I, I'm guilty of this as well. We're, we're not thinking about what happens when this the internet pipe is not as fat as we think it is. Yeah, you've got to have fat pipe to get this stuff uh, going <laughs> really well here. You know, it's funny. I the other day I was thinking about this because my internet connection. What happened? It w- it went out. My internet connection wasn't connected, and I was working locally, and my site was still loading actual site, like the one on the internet was still loading, not the local environment. And I was thinking like, wait, is my internet out? Or did I just write this site correctly so that it works when the internet's out? (laughs) And sure (laughs) enough, it was just Sapper and the service worker. It just worked. I was just like, huh, it's really nice when you don't have to think about any of this stuff and it just does it. But I hadn't thought about it. And that made me think, made me feel really bad for not thinking about it. Because it was a really nice experience when the site still worked offline. Yeah, absolutely. That's maybe that's the first one is Install a service worker that will cache your site so that when your user is is offline, they're still able to see it. So I think about things like maps or an address lookup if you're trying to go somewhere. Or I think another thing we don't think about is people who have limited data plans on their phone. Mm-hmm. If the person has run out of data and they've got six months till the that resets, then what do you do? And if somebody's trying to look up an address and then go to that place having that data cached offline and and still viewable, even if they don't have data on their phone is key. Yeah, it's only like so helpful for level up tutorials, because at the end of the day, we rely on video. You can't have that video served offline unless the user previously downloaded it. Yeah. So like there are some situations where it's just not a great solution for offline other than making the vital information available, right? I actually took the service worker off westboss.com because... A, it's scary to launch with a service worker because yes. you can get into this place where you goof something up and that goof up is cached and then the person has to load the page again and then look at the cached version and then they have to reload it again. You could code something in there to hard refresh it and whatnot, but the user will still get it. And then I've seen plenty of people get into a situation where they can't unregister their service worker for yes. whatever reason. I intentionally turned it off because I didn't want to launch with it. And now that the launch is done, I'm probably going to turn it back on just so like if someone wants to read a blog post, I don't have a service worker on my own course website just for the same reason Scott says, but it would be kind of cool. Like I always wonder that, like what's the limit to caching stuff in the browser? Like could I cache a couple videos so that someone could watch them from (laughs) the course platform, but when they're on the subway? Yeah. I don't know. It's an, it's interesting. That's why I make all my videos available for download for people who yeah, know me their too. internet connections know is going to be great. So do you want to talk about this loading UI section of this? Yeah. 
where there's a lot of things around loading UI. And if your data is taking longer than an X amount of time to load, then of course, you're going to want to show some sort of loading UI. Now, there's a lot of different ideas and opinions on loading UI and perceived speed of loading. I know skeleton screens, which is sort of just like a version of the actual layout, but they're typically like gray or dimmed out or not the actual content, yeah. but it's in the layout that the actual content in. Skeleton screens are super useful for getting that perceived loading time up. But in the same regard, if the loading time is faster than a certain threshold, then those are going to actually make the perceived loading time slower. What are your thoughts on skeleton screens versus a loading spinner versus, you know, just thinking or whatever uh, blank screens? The skeleton screen is probably my favorite just from being on slow connections because yeah. otherwise your face was just a white page and you don't know if it's broken or if, if you need to refresh it to try again, at least for something like YouTube where it just shows the skeleton screen. And also like when those finally do load in, then the whole page doesn't re-jerk itself over and move content <laughs> up and down, which is really frustrating. So big fan of that. Also, it's good to not show those loaders or skeleton screens right away, because like for a lot of connections, you're going to just be showing them for half a second. And then that's frustrating for the user to see that. And like Scott said, it shows faster perceived. So that's what React Suspense, if it ever launches, is going to do. It's going to allow you to control how long to suspend a component before it then shows a loading component. And that's going to be, be pretty cool. Like if you're dynamically loading a React component or, or tree of components mm -hmm. via dynamic imports using React Loadable or loadable components, you can always have that threshold as well to say, like, show this loading component while these ones are being pulled in from the network. Next, we have just showing a UI when something is happening. I've noticed that there's a lot of websites that don't show loading UI for things that they assume will always happen. So the, the biggest one for me is when you're you're filling out a form and the form will automatically show United States and all of the states. And I wait to switch it to Canada. And generally the way that I, I get to Canada is I tab over to the country form and I hit C three times because it goes Cambodia, something else, and then Canada. And every time you hit each one of those, it tries to find the version of states or provinces in that country. And a lot of those are loaded in on demand. What I've noticed is that there's a lot of websites that don't show any loading UI. So like I, I click Canada, is it doing something or is it not? And I sort of <laughs> sit there for a couple seconds waiting. And then sometimes it's broken because I hit C three times and it fired off three XHR requests. And now they're coming back at different intervals, which we'll talk about that next but just showing some sort of UI. And what I found really frustrating is a lot of checkout fields just throw an entire spinner over top of the entire form and disable the entire thing, which is just so frustrating because like while that's loading, I can fill out other fields if I want to. And just sort of like disabling the entire thing really sucks. So that, that was a really bad experience that I got a few times in the last couple of weeks. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't, it's not something I've ever dealt with being here in the States. And that's, a, yeah. No, that's the thing is like you never have dealt with that switching country bug ever because forms just default to the US and you can just go ahead and select your state. But little frustrating things to the rest of the world yeah. sometimes go unnoticed. Same thing with often places will ask you for your state and then your country because that's the way that it's written on a piece of mail. 
But mm-hmm. for for everyone outside of the states, they have to tab down to the country, change it, and <laughs> then tab back up to change their province or state. That's annoying. <laughs> we have uh, account for XHR failures. So one frustrating thing with fetch is that we haven't for the longest time had a way to cancel fetch requests that we now have a board controller, which is great. But a lot of devs, myself included, don't account for XHR requests being canceled. Because like, like I said, if you hit the C key, it starts fetching the provinces for Colombia. Mm-hmm. And then I hit it again. It starts fetching. Now the second request is going and you should kill that first request. And that's almost never an issue for developers working on the website because it's either local or they're on a fat connection. The other thing is uh, sometimes your XHR request will break. You fire off a request and then your connection dies. And you think it's still going. But if you open up DevTools, you'll see that that thing had then failed. So it's important. And this is why state machines are so good, because you should never get into a situation where it's just like you're assuming that it will either come back with an error. You're assuming it will come back successfully. But if you in that catch of your XHR request or of your await, then you should catch that and then set the state to there was an error or retry it or something like that. So it's Mm -hmm. important to think about those worst case situations, even though you think like this will probably never happen, it it does happen. Yeah. And then finally, the last one I have here uh, for today, we're going to split this into two different hasties because it's getting a little tasty. It's getting a little tasty. The still working. So if you are doing like a large upload, this is another thing is if I want to upload a six or seven meg image, uh, it might take 15 minutes for me. And you don't know if it's stuck and if it's broken or if it's just still going. And sometimes these loader bars are so small that you have no idea. Or like in a lot of cases, Twitter, Instagram, these upload bars, they're so fake. Like they go to 90%. (laughs) And then if it's not uploaded by that time, then it actually just waits there. So it doesn't actually give you any sort of feedback as to whether the file is still uploading. So just giving the user some sort of, if it's just a percentage that it's uploaded or some sort of like, hey, we're still uploading it, don't worry. Just leave me open or or whatever. Come back in 10 minutes and it should Mm -hmm. be uploaded. So some sort of timeout that after three or four minutes, you can give the the user some sort of feedback. Yeah, because that is that is the absolute worst. I was just waiting for my time machine backup to finish. And it was like, oh, the the progress bar is completely full. But, you know, it still says it's backing up and the gigabytes is still increasing. It's like, why? Why are you not letting me know, you know, what the actual percentage or if this thing is actually doing something I need to be concerned about or whatever. I had to go and run a terminal command to see what yeah. Time Machine was even doing I, and to, to see that it was actually moving the files. I was like, OK, uh, you, why don't you let me know about that? Right. It's true. Like I should be able to have access to that granular information like Backblaze when I use that. It tells me literally how many files are left. And even if it's like 400,000 files because I NPM installed something, it tells me exactly how many files are left. And that's such good information because I can just look at it for three seconds and see that number change. And then I go, oh, OK, it's just being slow. Yeah. So let's wrap it up here in the next hasty. We'll do talking about images, scripts and CSS, video, how to test for slow connections, what to do with connections that go in and out. Like what do you show on your app? There's some event listeners you can add there. And then a couple little tricks for CSS and font loading as well. Cool. So I'm excited for that one. That's going to be another 
tasty hasty. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll catch you on Wednesday, but also Monday to finish this one up. And then also Wednesday after that. And then also Monday after that. And then also everyone Monday, Wednesday, Wednesday we'll see you there. That. Yeah. <laughs> Peace. <laughs> Peace. Head on over to syntax.fm for a full archive of all of our shows. And don't forget to subscribe in your podcast player or drop a review if you like this show. 